This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host an annual conference, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is John Kabat-Zinn. John is the founder and director of the Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center and associate professor of medicine in the Division of Preventative and Behavioral Medicine. He's the author of Wherever You Go, There You Are, Full Catastrophe Living, Using Your Body and Mind to Face Stress, and a new book with an accompanying CD of guided practices called Mindfulness for Beginners from Sounds True. Additionally, with Sounds True, John has released a four-CD guided practice program called Guided Mindfulness Meditation, along with a two-session audio on mindfulness meditation for pain relief, as well as a program with three other authors on the mindful way through depression. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, John and I spoke about his work as a pioneer of mindfulness-based stress reduction and the introduction of meditation to a mainstream audience. We also talked about the important distinction that people need to make between awareness and the thinking mind and what John calls an orthogonal rotation that allows us to rest in awareness instead of identifying with our thoughts. We also talked about the role of science in validating the practice of mindfulness and the potential renaissance in the world that can come from a mindfulness revolution. Here's my conversation with John Kabat-Zinn. John, first of all, it's a delight to have this time with you. Thank you so much for making yourself available. My pleasure, Tammy. It's always great to be in conversation with you. I wanted to start with understanding your view of how it is that we are now in what could be called the age of mindfulness. And I say that in that there's a public acceptance of mindfulness that is really emerging. You and I were both recently at a conference where we saw reports from people in so many different fields of endeavor people bringing mindfulness into the education system, into healthcare, into the military. So what's your view? How is it now that we are in the age of mindfulness? Well, first of all, I, I, I love to hear you even propose that that might be the case. And uh, as you know, there's a book that came out recently of kind of uh, edited uh, journal, newspaper and magazine articles called The, the Mindfulness Revolution. And for me to just hear these kinds of things is kind of like uh, just uh, deeply heartwarming because um, whether it's true or not, uh, at least we're having this conversation and people are listening to it. And I think that that goes a long way to actually uh, making it 
a reality because uh, uh, certainly no one would have proposed anything like that 25 or 30 years ago. So there is something going on on the planet that uh, that um, I feel is leading people to uh, yearn for a certain kind of authenticity that I think we're beginning to realize cannot be found outside of ourselves. And although this is a very ancient uh, way of uh, understanding certain uh, elements of the mind and of personal satisfaction and happiness and, and wisdom, the fact that we can think that we might be moving into a kind of an age where this is becoming a distributive understanding that people can actually engage in and make real in their lives is is, is just phenomenal. And, and especially so for me, because this has been a dream for me for over 35 or 40 years uh, since I first, you know, was touched by Buddhist meditation practice in the first place and, and kind of realized intuitively what profound implications it could have, not just for my own individual life, but in the world if we were to um, recognize that element of understanding that some of these ancient traditions uh, have been cultivating and developing for millennia and bring it into the mainstream. And and in short, I would say that, you know, it has the potential to ignite a a universal or global renaissance on this planet that would put even the, you know, European and Italian renaissance into the shade uh, in ways that I think are not just... Uh, uplifting from the point of view of uh, art and a sense of deep uh, well-being on the part of individuals, but that may actually be the only promise the species and the planet have for making it through the next couple hundred years. So tell me how you see that renaissance when you say that, a renaissance that would outdo previous renaissances in history. What is it that you're seeing as a potential? Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's not totally clear, but but uh, but certainly part of it is the marriage of the or the confluence of uh, different forms of knowing or different uh, epistemologies that are now coming together on the planet for the first time. One of which, of course, is uh, the scientific way of. Uh, of uh, interrogating and understanding the nature of reality and the nature of our own minds and who's asking the kinds of questions that we ask about the nature of the world and the mind and and uh, matter and energy and so forth. So that's one stream. And the other stream is these deep meditative disciplines coming out of yoga and Buddhism and all of the wisdom traditions that are somehow now... Um, in deep dialogue and conversation and even collaborative research with science to actually uh, understand something in a deep way about uh, what our potential is as a species and who we are as human beings and how we can not be so um, imprisoned, uh, I guess would be the right word, by some of our more um, sort of shadowy genetic impulses and tribal kind of uh, conditioning 
where, you know, if we're not careful, we can cause enormous amounts of uh, of uh, harm and uh, violence and uh, and uh, mayhem. Uh, and that's been a steady stream through human history. And on the other hand, we're capable of, you know, filling the Louvre and all the other great art museums of the world with these magnificent and transcendent expressions of another aspect of human capacity and understanding and vision and delight. And it's not like we can ever sort of suppress that shadow side that causes harm, but if we can come to understand it in a deeper way, then I think there's the potential for a true shift in the way we conduct our economies, the way we govern ourselves, the way we conduct national uh, and uh, and supranational uh, you know negotiations and so forth and and finally come to a condition on the planet where um, we elevate what is most beautiful and good about all human beings and human culture, and we recognize our own uh, you know, shadow side or or uh, uh, destructive and afflictive emotions to the point where we we structure society and also conduct our lives in a way that they will have sort of their their potential negative effects would be far more minimal than they are nowadays. Uh, where you know, just in terms of either personal violence or in terms of uh, you know, national policy, uh, there's so much, you know, harm caused in the world uh, by the same human mind that is so capable of creating beauty. Now, John, when I first asked you this question, what you think might be at the root of the mainstream acceptance of mindfulness, you use the words, our yearning for authenticity. And I'd love if you could speak more about how the practice of mindfulness addresses this yearning that we have for authenticity. Yeah. Well, thanks for remembering that. I think that the, the the fundamental question that we all face as human beings uh, is like who are we and what are we doing here and what uh, you know, what if anything is the meaning or the purpose or the calling for uh, an embodied life lived because it doesn't get lived for all that long, you know, a brief 70, 80, 90 years, and, it, and it's over, and how do we relate to it? And I think that um, that these meditative traditions, and in particular mindfulness, that, which is what we're talking about, is um, a really uh, something that uh, is fundamental. This is not a kind of just uh, one more... Um, just thing among many different things, but there's something about uh, mindfulness that is absolutely core to our humanity and what I often call the final common pathway of what makes us human. And that is, you know, our capacity for awareness itself, for for open-hearted uh, awareness um, itself uh, that is just part of the human repertoire and part of our genetic inheritance, but that um, has only been refined until very recently in monastic settings or in isolated artistic settings or in isolated, you know, sort of lives where it's often seen as uh, 
sort of unusual and uh, and very much a characteristic of uh, individual genius as opposed to something that's part of the human repertoire and that we're all capable of cultivating. So I should probably say at this point that for people who are listening that what we're talking about when we use the word mindfulness is a particular way of being or a way of uh, paying attention that leads to a kind of much more robust um, capacity to live inside of our awareness as opposed to be completely caught up in in uh, discursive thinking and everything that that carries with it, including a lot of emotional reactivity that's often uh, blinding or um, or that leads to um, a great deal of mm, suffering and uh, and uh, a sense of being lost or confused or out of touch with what's most fundamental. And our work over the past 32 years in you know, the field of mindfulness-based stress reduction and in medicine and in psychology and so forth is really demonstrating that regular people, you know, across the entire lifespan and across and really across all cultures are capable of training in this kind of uh, attentional cultivation to the point where they really, in a short period of time, transform the way they actually are in relationship to their internal and external experience to their bodies, to their minds, to their hearts, to the people they love, the people they work with, and so forth. And and that, you know, that was not known 30 years ago that mainstream Americans, for instance, would would actually, you know, take to meditation as anything beyond sort of the the lunatic fringe, you know, cultural creative types and so forth. And And now, if there is an age of mindfulness, what it means is that as you started out saying, it really is everywhere and people are being drawn to it, not for the usual kinds of uh, uh, gee whiz kinds of uh, desire to be like other people uh, and and to kind of be part of the sort of fashion, fashionistas, but because this is satisfying a deep, deep longing we have to belong, to feel whole, to feel connected, and to feel that we're the authors of our own lives, so to speak. Uh, We can only do that out of awareness, and when we are taking responsibility for the authorship of our lives, then that's in a sense what authenticity really means, that we are fully present and able to deal with whatsoever the, you know, with what... uh, Zorba, the Greek called the full catastrophe of the human condition, and uh, to you know to cite another movie title, you know, um, take in the the full spectrum of the good, the bad, and the ugly in such a way that we don't get caught in any of it, but instead can use all of those energies to really further what's deepest and best and most beautiful in ourselves, both as individuals and as a species. Now, you've introduced this word awareness, and it seems to me, and I'd love to have you comment on this, that when people are introduced to mindfulness training or through other experiences in their life as they're growing and changing, that this discovery that there's awareness and that there's thinking 
and they're different is one of the big breakthroughs that happens for people. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's kind of a big surprise because awareness is not something that people are... uh, I've never heard of, you know, it's like, oh, oh, awareness? Well, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, I'm aware. I'm aware that I'm miserable or I'm aware that I'm walking down the street or I'm aware that, uh, you know, uh, it's Wednesday or whatever it is. Um, But that's in a sense like not really grasping how profound what what we're talking about is yes it's true that that is what we're talking about we're talking about awareness and and i like to say that to a first approximation there's only one awareness so it's not like i'm talking about some special awareness that you don't have uh it's the same awareness that it's wednesday and that you have a body and that you're 35 years old or 85 years old but it's but we've never really spent any time inhabiting that awareness and feeling our way into its fullness and its power and its boundlessness. So when I'm giving PowerPoint presentations to um, medical audiences or the like, uh, I often include a slide with an image of a balance. And on one pan of the balance is thinking. And on the other side of the balance is awareness. And we are brought up, as your question implies, kind of so involved in thinking and so much our educational system is so aimed at getting us to be really good discriminative discerning uh you know uh, conceptual thinkers that we've just put all our eggs in that on that side of the balance in that basket and have had no training in awareness but awareness can trump thought in the sense that for any thought that you might have we could bring awareness to it, no matter how big, no matter how profound, no matter how important. We can bring awareness to that thought and therefore ha- supply a whole new dimension to how we would actually be in relationship to that thought or to the emotion that often goes along with so many of our thoughts. And that gives us what I call new degrees of freedom for actually being able to make better use of our creativity and imagination and powerful, positive thought processes, but at the same time not become prisoners or slaves to unexamined, tacit assumptions, strings of thoughts that we don't actually realize are even thoughts, but that we just view as the way it is, that this is reality without ever questioning it. And that's, I think, where a lot of the... That itself is an act of harm, self-harm, an act of violence. And I think it often leads directly to much sort of more widespread acts of harm and violence, that ignorance. I'm curious, John, how you relate to thoughts. And what I mean by that is here you have, of course, all kinds of thoughts, and some of them might be <laughs> yeah. quite, in, some of them might be quite inspired. How do you know, oh, that's a thought that I want to actually take seriously? That's a thought, oh, forget yeah. it. Well, you know, if you, if, I should say that a lot of this, if there is an age of mindfulness, hopefully it involves a huge amount of people actually sitting down and practicing non-doing, which is not the same as nothing. But, you know, that's a, it's a, it, it is a meditative practice, and meditation involves a certain kind of 
really arduous and rigorous discipline. So it, it means hanging out with yourself without filling up the time. And as soon as you do that, of course, you realize, but you are filling up the time because your mind is just completely inundated with thoughts, just going here, there, and everywhere else, and really completely outrageous, unbelievable thoughts, many of them. And some of them you wouldn't want to ever admit are your own. So you might think, well, I don't know where these thoughts come from, but they're certainly not mine. But, uh, yeah, so so there you have it. So in my own life, I mean, I'm no different from anybody else. So there's huge amounts of thoughts, and maybe some are inspiring, but most of them are about as important as what I had for dinner three nights ago or something like that. And a lot of them are really highly, highly conditioned by uh, my own personal preferences, what I like versus what I don't like, what I think is good versus what I think is bad. And all of this is totally normal, of course, and very, very conventional. But where mindfulness comes in is to actually just let that all happen without believing any of it and without operationalizing any of it and to just if you will, rest in awareness. The image I sometimes use is like, imagine your thoughts were like a cascading waterfall just going over a cliff. I mean, just never ending. And uh, and if you were able to sort of sit behind it in a little depression in the rock face so that you weren't like completely inundated and drenched by the, by the uh, water falling, but you did get a lot of spray and so forth. But you could just sit back there and just listen to the uh, the sounds and the energy of the thought stream expressing itself. You would have an entirely different relationship to creativity, to imagination, to negative thoughts, to anger, to to sadness, to anxiety. And that's what we're really talking about is rotating in consciousness, uh, what I call an orthogonal rotation, a 90-degree rotation in consciousness where all of this stuff is still happening. It's all the same. You're the same person you always were, except for one thing, and that is you are resting in this non-conceptual knowing that is, you know, every one of our birthright, namely awareness. And that seems to give us a whole new way of being in relationship to inner and outer experience and therefore making much more discerning, wiser, more skillful, less harmful, more wholesome, as they sometimes say, choices that can lead to, uh, uh, well, let's just put it this way, a lot less self-generated suffering and a lot greater um, uh, ways of contributing to well-being in the world, not simply your own, but even more uh, noteworthy, the capacity to actually be of some use in alleviating the suffering and uh, illuminating the beauty of other people. Now, you mentioned creativity, and previously you talked about the potential new renaissance that mindfulness could be a part of. Here we are, we're watching thoughts, emotions, everything. That creative impulse, it may come as an idea or a thought. You're such an innovative person, and you seem to often know exactly what's 
next needed in terms of articulating something for the culture. So I'm curious how that works in you. Does it appear differently in your body or something when it's a creative impulse than just discursive thinking? Um, Well, first of all, I think that if a thought is really, truly innovative and creative, you won't have it once and never forget it and never remember it. So a lot of people might think, well, if I'm meditating, I better sit with a pencil and a pad of paper to capture any of these fantastic, great, wonderful, Nobel Prize winning breakthrough thoughts that I might have. But I don't do that. Uh, I, and in fact, I don't recommend anybody do that because then you're just busy writing down your discursive thoughts um, in the hope that you'll put them to work at some later time. But what's really happening is in the whole process, you're being transformed by the willingness to be with the cascading mind in this way and, and to, as uh, often spoken of, is simply rest in awareness. Now, that's a skill. I mean, that's something where if you hear the word rest and awareness, somebody might say, well, what are you talking about? But when you actually learn to actually drop in on yourself in a way that's really wakeful, so I'm not talking about resting, getting, you know, going to sleep, but actually falling awake, then your relationship to that generative creativity within yourself, which I don't think is any less in anybody than in anybody else. I mean, we're all geniuses of one kind or another. And I think part of it is that we don't recognize and other people never recognize and we often don't get a chance to put into any kind of play our own unique aspect of genius. But when you're watching your mind in this kind of a way, it rapidly becomes apparent because things recur. So interesting thoughts come back over and over and over again, which is one reason you don't need to write them down or or re- remember them because they, they have a way of uh, nurturing you in a certain way. So I take an enormous amount of uh, sort of pleasure in, in actually um, – not trying to get anywhere. And this is a really fundamental to if it's really mindfulness, this is an element of it, that it's not It's not like we're trying to get to some great state. It's not like mindfulness is a state. It's not like, oh, yeah, all you need to do is get into the mindful state and then creativity will flourish and uh, imagination will flourish and you'll be such a more warm-hearted person. It's no. What it's saying is, And it's a little bit akin to the sort of Zen understanding of uh, Buddha nature, that you're already Buddha. The reason that it's hard or a realized being or kind of awakened, that's your true nature. But the reason it's hard for us to actually realize that or make it real or or, um, live in that way is that we uh, are completely... um, uh, giving ourselves over to the thought domain, and in particular the thought that, oh, I'll be a better person when I get this. I'll be a better person when I understand that, when I become a Buddha. And if you already are a Buddha, then, of course, you're getting in your own way by taking that kind of approach. So the Heart Sutra, which is one of my favorite texts in the Zen tradition, aside from throwing out the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of that, uh, by negating it, meaning not that it's not true, but that any attachment to it would be uh, a total ignorance. 
the the Heart Sutra said there's no place to go, there's nothing to do, and there's nothing to attain. And so when you sit in that way or you cultivate mindfulness in everyday life in that way, it's not like you become some kind of shirker or a lazy good-for-nothing. It's that you're actually rotating consciousness so that you're not caught by the usual things that will just hold us in a certain kind of conventional framework that does not allow us to be free to be who we already are. And every one of us will be free in a different way because we are already different and unique. So that kind of creativity that you're talking about and how it might express and what kind of true work might be accomplished by people in the world, when that's released at kind of large levels throughout society rather than a small number of, you know, special people being funded by the Pope or, you know, other patrons of the arts like the the Medicis and so forth, uh, with Leonardo and uh, Michelangelo and so forth, and Donizetti and, and all those Renaissance uh, painters and sculptors and so forth. Uh, it could flourish everywhere in all the different countries of the world and all the different cultures of the world. And I actually believe that this is happening. Uh, I don't think it's just my dream or my sort of craziness or imagination. I actually feel that for various reasons having to do with the technology and everything that humanity's been through and the fact that you know we're now much more capable of destroying the planet and polluting uh, the planet and nuclear weapons and all of this kind of stuff, that we're waking up to just what we need to know, I hope, in order to um, become what the species name says we are, Homo sapiens sapiens, which means in Latin, the species that knows and knows that it knows, or awareness and awareness of awareness. And it would be nice if we could live our way into that name before we wind up sort of doing things that we don't even want to talk about in terms of what, um, you know... um, the amount of harm that a small number of people are actually capable of uh, causing on the planet to very, very large numbers of people. Now, John, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by this rotation in consciousness. You said an orthogonal, a 90-degree yeah, rotation. that's a hard one because I use the word orthogonal and I, you know... It's okay, but what do you mean? What's rotating? Okay. So, wh- let me try to give an example. Um What I'm trying to suggest, and we've all had this experience as human beings, is that part of the experience of waking up is realizing. I mean, they often speak of enlightenment as realization, whatever enlightenment is, but it means making real something that was not actually real or apparent before. It becomes real to you. And here's an example. well, I'll give you two. The orthogonal rotation is, you know, the, the, that word. I, when I was at MIT, I coined that term to try to uh, sort of mm, catch the attention of the MIT, you know, scientific and engineering community about uh, something uh, having to do with a change in the way we do our work and relate to society because so much of what MIT was doing was developing the the next generations of laser-guided nuclear weapons and uh, smart bombs that then, you know, were being uh, 
tested in uh, Vietnam and, and then used in subsequent wars. So all that technology was coming out of MIT, and I was talking as a, uh, a student uh, political uh, leader about rotating in consciousness so that we 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 no longer we take responsibility for what the social consequences of our technological prowess and discoveries are and so forth so here's two examples one is if you take two polarized uh uh, uh sunglass uh lenses and you put one on top of the other everybody knows that if they're uh one, in one configuration no light will come through They'll be the light will be completely blocked. But if you rotate 190 degrees over the other, it allows light in. That's the nature of the polarization of the sunglass lenses. Um, but here's an, a more human example. And there are many examples of this kind. But take an apology, an authentic apology. There are many, many instances, either among nations or among people, where people actually hate each other, detest each other, resent each other, you know, like uh, the the Capulets and the uh, Montagues, you know, for generations, these kinds of feuds, um, people get murdered over them and so forth. So there can be like incredible resentment and anger between, say, two people. And then all of a sudden, one person will seize the moment and for completely unexplainable reasons, make an authentic apology to the other person. And just the gesture of that will change something in the other person, unlock something in the other person. And in one moment, all the hatred, all the resentment, sometimes built up over centuries, completely dissolves, and you would give your life for this other person who a moment before you were going to kill. That's what I would call a rotation in consciousness. Nothing's different. The whole history is the same as it was before except that everything is different because some little thing is shifted in the heart or in the mind that's not actually little at all. And that's what I'm calling a rotation in consciousness or an, altern uh, an orthogonal rotation in consciousness. It's a new way of being in relationship to what was a moment before a completely conventional reality that had its own coordinate system and logic. And all of a sudden, you're thinking outside the box. Everything is different. You're capable of new degrees of freedom, new degrees of ways of being. Um, you know, and there are lots of examples of that in, you know, sort of uh, even when Nixon reached out to China and opened up China, uh, you know, it was an orthogonal rotation. It was like a chess move that opened up things that were com ran completely contrary to all of the um, political thinking of the day and the ideologies of the day. And uh, we need more and more of those on the mini level, on the micro level, and on the sort of uh, larger uh, macro level. Um, and they can only come about by shifts in how we see, how we hear, how we understand ourselves. And that all comes out of awareness. Uh, it doesn't come out of, uh, or what I, I sometimes use it as a present participle, awareness sing, so that we don't turn it into a thing or a noun, as opposed to just coming out of clever thinking. Clever thinking brought us a lot of the, you know, bankrupt foreign policies of the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, and, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. And clever thinking has also brought us the banking crisis and, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and 
All of that was brought on by very clever minds who thought that they could actually game a system by selling houses to people they knew couldn't afford them and then parceling out the risk and all this stuff. This is all thought-based, but no awareness. And and therefore no ethics, no morality. Is this making any sense to you? It's making good sense, and I want to actually stay with it for a moment. You know, it's very interesting to me how you teach mindfulness, at least in the approach in the book CD, The Sounds True Program, Mindfulness for Beginners, where you start by teaching people how to pay attention to something they're eating and then to the breath and then to the feeling in their body. And then as we've been talking about being aware of thoughts, emotions, and then there's this shift that happens in the final practice where now we've learned how to be aware of something we might put in our mouth, objects, right? But now we're resting as pure awareness without objects. In your experience of teaching people how you help people make that shift, and do people suddenly feel now this is a little confusing? I mean, it was fine when I was paying attention to my breath. I I got it, but now there's a lot going on. The great question. Yeah, you know, sometimes that sort of objectless attention is... uh, thought of as a kind of advanced practice, <clears throat> but I don't actually think of it in, as an advanced practice at all. Again, because uh, of what I said at the beginning, there's only one awareness, so uh, the more comfortable we get at inhabiting it, the easier it is to uh, see its full implications, part of which is there's no edge to awareness, there's no boundary to it, it's like infinite, and there's no center to it. So that um, is something that regular people can get very, very quickly. I mean, they experience it, but the, you know, there's never been a vocabulary established in school or anywhere else for actually talking about this stuff. And when we do arrange a structure for talking about it, people say, well, okay, what's the big deal? So I can be aware of something. I can pay attention to something, but I can also just be open to whatever might arise. It's like, and then we use all sorts of images, you know, and I didn't make these up, but like the sky, you know. So supposing the sky was awareness, then if a bird flew through, the sky would know it. And it would know whatever it needed to know about the bird. Or uh, if a raindrop fell through, or if uh, there was, you know, uh, clouds coming and going, or turbulence within the atmosphere, or anything like that. A field of awareness would know whatever is moving in the field of awareness, but it has its own sort of uh, ground condition of just being the sky, just being awareness, and not the objects of awareness. And uh, so as we cultivate that, uh, you get more and more at home in not having anything have to happen and not having to actually push anything away or pursue anything just because it comes around as kind of nice or not nice, pleasant or unpleasant. And when you do that as a kind of, you know, sort of love affair, as a kind of art form as a, and, and a certain degree of, of discipline, um, then it shifts what, what I sometimes call our default setting from one of thinking and from one of a kind of 
never-ending narrative, the center of which is always myself. So it's always about me and I, me, and mine, the personal pronouns, to a much more, as you were suggesting, body-centered field of awareness that doesn't have to have a narrative or doesn't have to believe its own narrative or take it seriously, but is more in what you could call a domain of not knowing. And not knowing is a very, very beautiful way to be in relationship to things because most of what we know isn't true anyway. They're just our ideas and opinions. Like we might know we don't like somebody, but as I was saying, like shift something just slightly and you might like the person, you might like them a lot. It happened to me yesterday, actually. I was walking by somebody who was uh, panhandling and... Uh, and that happens a lot where I happen to be at the moment. And uh, But he wasn't actually panhandling. He, he didn't say anything. He I just passed him by. But there was something about the feeling of moving past him that I felt like I did not want to pass him by. So I went back and uh, and, you know, put some money in the cup that he had there. And And he said, thank you. The way he had said thank you had so much dignity in it. It had so much, I mean, I felt so badly for this guy. I mean, that we're in such a bad economic situation that people are out there on the streets and, you know, in so many different uh, degrees of uh, uh, deprivation. And uh, and many of the people who panhandle are actually quite aggressive, and you know, and so forth. But th- the way this th- the way this person just said thank you, uh, it just really moved me. And, and and my impulse was to like you know just like want to be his friend and give him more money and you know take him home and none of which I did. But there was that moment where I really saw this guy and uh and it was it was its its own thing it didn't need another thing to happen it was just uh a beautiful exchange and i think that everybody you know um um has that uh beauty but most of us live very far from it most of the time. And so we're caught off guard a lot of the time, and we're not our best selves And uh, much of the time. And then we act in ways that, you know, betray even our own self-interest and get us into more trouble or alienate other people. And uh, these are all choices that you can blame on society as much as you want. But when you live in that kind of a way, then, you know... Um, and without romanticizing it in any way, and I'm certainly not romanticizing him or myself or the practice of mindfulness, uh, the world is instantaneously different in ways that may be infinitesimally small, but not at all insignificant. They turn out to be incredibly significant. And with patience, you know, and and certainly having worked uh you know, to cultivate MBSR for over 32 years, um, it really requires a long-term perspective 
and a kind of a systematic nurturance and feeding in all of the various ways that, you know, would come to anybody's mind about how to further something in the world and bring it along more. Um, that over time, I think that's the generation, the, that's the direction that uh, that we are moving in. And so, you know, from that sense, I, I certainly hope that you're right, that it's uh, uh, we're coming into an age of mindfulness and that is beginning to affect, you know, social movements. Certainly uh, Occupy Wall Street, I mean, <laughs> there was, um, you know, I've... Uh, there was a tent at the Occupy Oakland, a meditation tent, and the sign outside said, Occupy yourself. Occupy your heart. Uh, so, you know, I think there is a certain way in which, uh, in terms of social movements, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, in terms of medicine, in terms of education, uh, in terms of the military, um, the world is responding to this, and in part... <sighs> You know, as I said, starting out, it's, it's it's responding in part because we are literally starving for some kind of profound uh, experience of authenticity and inner belonging and harmony that uh, we're not going to find outside ourselves. John, if it's okay, I'd like to ask you a personal question about... Yeah, sure. I don't know if I'll answer it. You don't have to, but... but I'm happy to hear it. But, you know, this example of the waterfall and everything that's happening, all of our thoughts, our stories, our emotions, and I'm curious in your life, what gets you caught up? What gets you out of that seat of awareness and all caught up and bundled up in what's happening? Are there things that are triggers? Uh, Yeah, I think the thing that most gets me caught up is when I say yes to too many things and I get too busy. Um, And the irony being that, you know, I can get, you know, the things that I get busy about all have to do with mindfulness, but too much busyness around mindfulness is not mindful and is not a good thing. So I have to, in fact, do a certain kind of yoga where, you know, it involves a lot of saying no, and it involves uh, a lot of uh, when I really want to say yes, but saying yes to too many things is being really uh, unfaithful to the things you've already said yes to. But that's an art form that I have not, you know, uh, I have not uh, uh, developed as far as it might be developed, I'll tell you that. And so, you know, when I get uh, too many, too many uh, deadlines, too many things that have to be done in too short a period of time, then luckily one of the side effects of this kind of meditation practice is that you can be unbelie- I can be unbelievably concentrated and focused and get huge amounts of stuff done. But I do that at the expense of other aspects of things. So. That's certainly one of my uh, growing edges. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that you talk about mindfulness practice that's so interesting to me, and so I want to make sure to have the space here for you to comment on it, is that we can take an affectionate attention. And in here in our conversation, you've talked about mindfulness practice as a love affair. And I wonder if you can talk some about that, this affectionate attention. Yeah. Um, Well, 
thanks for pointing that out because I, I, it's very important to me and I think to most people who practice is that mindfulness is, you know, the way I define it is kind of operationally is it's uh, the awareness that arises by paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And the non-judgmentally is the real kicker because we have judgments and ideas and opinions about just about everything. But that's where the uh, affectionate attending comes in, that it's not some kind of cold clinical perspective that we're taking on things as you would if you were like uh, uh, just thinking about things, but it's actually um, experiencing a sense of being in relationship to everything that is being experienced because the reality is all relational. I mean, you can't touch without being touched. And by extension, all the senses are in some way relational. If you don't think that uh, when you see that you're being seen by the world, well, you may not feel that way if you're like living in New York City where everybody averts eye contact. But if you try to spend the night in the rainforest in the Amazon, say, um, you'll have the feeling that you're being seen, not just that you're seeing, that you're being heard, that you're not just hearing, that you're being smelled, and it's not just you smelling. And you could very well be being tasted, too, by small creatures as well as potentially lunch for big creatures. So there is a way in which we have, uh, in the past couple of hundred years, drifted away from recognizing the reciprocity of all of the senses and of all of our various ways of knowing. But once you realize that we are completely embedded in an interconnected world in that and every other way, then the only real response is a sense of profound um, appreciation or affection for the fact that we are not separate. And what we most dread, I think, as human beings is feeling alone and separate. Uh, And alone, of course, doesn't have to be separate. Alone could be not lonely, but usually alone means lonely unless you've done a huge amount of work on yourself. And then you realize there's no being alone because you're part of this warp and woof of, you know, life that is, you know, doesn't end at the boundaries of our skin. So, uh... I've come over over the 45 years that I've been practicing meditation myself to actually feel that every time I formally take my seat uh, on my meditation cushion, it's a radical act of love. And it's a radical act of sanity. And it's also a radical act of self-compassion, you know, because it's like giving myself a break. It's not about how much I get done in the next... 10 minutes or 24 hours. It's about now. It's always about this timeless moment. And and I really do feel that that's a love affair uh, with life and with the preciousness of our moments. And, um, and most of us, very often, when we're in our default thinking mode, we're blasting through our moments to get the better moments and then realizing when we die, if we're lucky, uh, as Thoreau put it, that we haven't lived, that we missed the boat, so to speak. And so an affectionate attention is really uh, the complete opposite of that. It's actually recognizing that, yeah, I could die in this moment and it would be just fine. 
And in fact, if you die to the future and you die to the past in that moment, which is what in yoga the corpse pose is all about, uh, it's not maudlin. It's about like really dying to those aspects of our being that we're so attached to. So we die to the attachment, including the attachment to me being special and me being the center of the universe. Then it's actually... um, uh, an experience of profound opening and connectedness that just is love. I mean, I don't know any other way to express it. And it's and it's objectless, too, just like awareness. It's not love for any particular somebody, although it can express that way. But it's uh, what the Tibetans sometimes call non-referential compassion. It's not doesn't need objects to help it along or to make it more specific. It's like it's just like it's it's just the nature of the human heart. And this, but it's not a state. It's not like I want people to say like, oh, now I gotta, you know, get to that in my meditation practice. There's no getting to anything. That's that's simply that's simply the kind of. Um, how should I put it? That that is simply. The, how we already are, and it's more a question of getting out of our own way and allowing it to wash through and wash over us in the same way as the breath is washing through us and washing over us, and we just have no more awareness of that than we have of how beautiful life is and how deeply connected we are to to all of it. You've done this tremendous work in helping introduce meditation, calling it mindfulness, to a mainstream audience. And I think one of the things you pointed out was there was this question, could everyday people, not people who were dedicated monastics or going on retreat, learn to rest in awareness and that you found the answer to be yes, everyday people can. But what kind of commitment is required for this to become real in people's lives? I think one of the hurdles often that people talk about is, well, how can I really introduce mindfulness in a deep way where people are really resting in awareness if people want everything spontaneously, you know, Mick Mick fast food lane. Right, right. Mick meditation, Mick mindfulness. And it's all a big danger. That's true. Well, um, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that, except that, um, you know, I work with hundreds, I would say thousands of colleagues around the world now who teach MBSR. And the vast majority of them, you know, you can't teach it John Kabat-Zinn's way. You have to teach it your way. So everybody in some sense uh, is um, actually manifesting their own being in training people in the kind of uh, curriculum, if you will, of MBSR. And the curriculum is fairly straightforward, and it is quite demanding. I've used the word discipline several times. But one of the things we've discovered over time is that mainstream Americans will take to this like ducks to water. It's no more demanding than going out uh, and working at a job you don't like and you know, to put food on the table for your children. I mean, there's so many things that we all do and don't recognize that we do in a disciplined way. So this is actually giving yourself a great gift. And and um, and it's not like you have to practice for a certain number of minutes every day or at the same time every day. I mean, those are all nice and helpful supports. 
But the real meditation practice is how you live your life from moment to moment. And when people understand that, then life itself becomes both the meditation teacher and the meditation practice. And you can't imitate anybody else. You have to find your own way. And uh, life, being the teacher, will show you every time you get caught, every time you get hung up, every time you get attached. So all of the things that we most think might be failures are actually just lessons, just the way I think it was Thomas Edison said that, you know, after his thousandth try resulted in the um, light bulb, but 999 failures. He said those weren't failures at all. They had 999 ways of knowing how not to make a light bulb. And so in that sense, uh, that again is a very kind of generous way of looking at it. But uh, I think that we gave ourselves the right name as a species, Homo sapiens sapiens, and and, and that it's not just I that feel like uh, uh, mindfulness is a kind of love affair with what's beautiful and deepest in life and, and also what's um, possible, that you know, hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people are tasting this and actually going the distance with it. I mean, they're not like, it's not like, uh, you know, some popular fad that's come and gone already. It's It's got sustaining power and it's growing. And not only that, I mean, just to say, uh, I just got back from China where I was teaching for two weeks and and had the privilege of actually going to a monastery that's uh, about uh, a Chan monastery and monastery that's about 800 years old and those then the monks and the Zen masters there they're, they're all interested in how we're teaching mindfulness this is their tradition I mean they have a 1500 year tradition of it and yet they are inspired by how it's manifesting in the West that is so totally mind-blowing to me and they are doing remarkable things with their own meditation practice in China that would have been unthinkable uh, even a few years ago. Uh, and they want to have these kinds of conversations with Western scientists and breathe, in some sense, new life into their own Dharma practice. It To me, it's like staggering. What do you mean? What are they doing that's innovative with Well, one practice. thing that they're doing is they've been in conversation with a number of uh, Chinese psychologists about how to actually have the monks, uh, and it is monks because it's a monastery, it's not a nunnery, um, man a uh, 24-7 hotline that they call the Kuan Yin hotline for people who are in despair in China and want to kill themselves or whatever it is. And there are many, many of them because Chinese society is no, um, you know, utopia. Um, and so you have these monks who ordinarily might be thought of as separating themselves from the world and meditating in caves or in, you know, sort of monastic settings. And they are actually making themselves available uh, on tel- by telephone and on the web to actually be in contact with people who are suffering, who have no interest maybe in Chan or Buddhism or anything like that, but they are suffering. And the monks are trying to find modern ways of taking their practice and bringing it out into the world that would uh, be of benefit. Mm-hmm. And they want to know about the science of it and how it changes the brain and all of that and all of that kind of stuff, which we haven't really talked about, but which is a huge part of why 
uh, it's moved so uh, you know facilely into the mainstream is that um, I've, I realized from the very beginning, again, in part because of my scientific background, that uh, this had to be grounded in science for it to you know stand the test of time. And now, the science of mindfulness is just a field unto itself. And uh, as you know, and it's it's just having gigantic repercussions, including enlivening all of the meditation traditions, because now they're they're beginning to actually have a new way of speaking about the benefits of their thousands of years old practice or practices. If you were able to just say the one or two discoveries from science that you think have made the biggest difference in terms of impressing people about the power of mindfulness, what would it be? Just the biggest highlights. It may be too early to tell because, you know, because I'm trained as a, you know, hardcore scientist, I don't like to make like um, rash proclamations about uh, what's true because um, probably we'll need another 30, 40, or 100 years to sort it all out, if not more. Uh, but but uh, to just say from a very personal point of view, um, one study that I did that is being replicated now, hopefully in a couple of places, showed, and I haven't used the word very much in our conversation, if at all, but healing is a big part of this. And I use the word healing to mean not curing, but a coming to terms with things as they are. That's my working definition of healing. But I did a study a number of years ago with people with the skin disease psoriasis, showing that if they meditated while they were receiving ultraviolet light treatment for their psoriasis, that their skin healed four times as fast as if they were just getting the ultraviolet light by itself. So the ultraviolet light isn't a cure, but it does uh, make the uh, skin clear. But if you're meditating while you're receiving the ultraviolet light, your, your skin clears four times as fast. The implications of that are enormous because it means that the mind can actually influence uh, a healing process that you can see and photograph and measure down to the level of what has to be gene expression and cell replication. And this has implications for skin cancer and all sorts of things like that because um, um, they are genes that are related between psoriasis and basal cell carcinoma. So that's one. The other, I would say, is all this brain research that's coming out that's showing not only changes in the activity of very important regions of the brain that have to do with learning, that have to do with memory, that have to do with executive function and decision-making and emotion regulation, but not only finding uh, uh, changes in, um, in activation of various regions of the brain in the direction of what you might call greater cognitive control, greater uh, executive functioning, and greater emotional intelligence. But actually, they're now seeing structural changes in many of these regions of both the neocortex and the limbic system, the emotional sort of uh, um, domain of the brain. And and so in eight weeks in MBSR, they're seeing thickening in the in various regions of say the the hippocampus and certain regions of the insula and the neocortex, and then a thinning in the amygdala. If these results turn out to be true, is really 
demonstrating, and the irony is it's through meditation research, that the human brain is really an organ of experience and it responds to experience by changing its own structure. And since its structure is the most complex structure in the, in the known universe and consists of over 100 billion neurons, and neurons are only half the population of the human brain, and, uh, and that 100 billion neurons has so many connections that for our purposes, the number of synaptic connections is infinite. Uh, and that's sitting right inside each one of our skulls. I mean, you know, uh, on the days that we feel depressed or out of sorts or so forth, I think we re need to really re remember that we're miraculous beings. And no matter what the science winds up showing, that um, there's far more right with us than wrong with us. And we need to really seize the moments that we have, which is always and only this one, and make maximal use of it uh, without blaming our own circumstances or other people for why we're, you know, not living up to our potential or whatever. And I think that we can really help each other in this regard. So rather than it just being about self-improvement or anything like that, there's no improvement on the self, because whatever we think the self is, it's not. And I go into that in great detail in the book you mentioned, uh, Mindfulness for Beginners, and uh, and that we're in some sense identifying with ourselves in far too small a way as human beings, and that we do need to recognize our 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 own individual and unique genius and then nurture it. And a large part of that nurturing is by nurturing each other, not by being self-preoccupied and self-involved. Okay, John, just two final questions. I'm trying to narrow it down. In talking about the scientific research, because I know that you're in there working directly with scientists, do you see any discovery that we may be on the verge of that would really shift our appreciation of the power of mindfulness even further, something that we might be very close to discovering? Hmm. I'm really not the person to ask to answer that question. I'm, I'm not that privy to the absolute cutting-edge latest stuff that still hasn't been published. Uh, but I think that uh, if, if I were to guess... I would say that it's going to come in the area of the developing brain and in the whole field of uh, early childhood and childhood education and learning. And that here you've got, you know, a brain that's, it takes almost to adulthood for the brain to completely wire itself. And if it's wiring itself on the basis of the experiences that children are having, both in school, in the family, and out wherever they are, that by uh, recognizing this profound capacity for the brain to shape itself in early life, and not it also does it throughout life, but it's most active in that reshaping in early life, then there is the potential to actually uh, shape the way we educate our children and ourselves in ways that uh, would enhance learning and and couple it with uh, uh, sort of, in some sense, reap the deepest 
benefits of the analog world, you know, the world before the digital age, the world before computers, uh, and really nurture those different forms of intelligence and genius that all children have. And at the same time, because there's no denying that we're now in a digital age, making use of the technology in age-appropriate ways and at, in, in ways that we don't lose the beauty of the analog, we, we make use of without becoming slaves to or addicts of the digital world. And then uh, that, I think, is where the uh, generator lies for this uh, renaissance that I was talking about. One final question, John. I'm curious, how does it feel to you to see a dream of yours, at least a big part of a dream, which is mindfulness to be introduced successfully into healthcare and into all of these different fields? How does it feel to you as a pioneer? <laughs> Do you feel fulfilled? Uh, I feel like a very uh, sort of with a grandfather with a very big family and a big smile on my face. Um, you know, just a, a profound sense of uh, awe, humble humility, uh, gratitude, and, and, and satisfaction. And also mystery, because, you know, and I wrote about this in a paper that about the origins of MBSR. Um, but, you know, it's really funny how, you know, yes, everybody points to me and says, well, you know, that's where it started. And it's true, but it's also vastly mysterious. And, and everybody who's been involved has played a, you know, an important role in it. And so the unfolding of this kind of thing is um, a distributive phenomenon that doesn't really have a leader or a leadership. It's kind of a leading from within uh, and a healing from within and transforming from within. Only what we're realizing is that there's no within and without. So uh, everybody, in some sense, is contributing to this unfolding. And that said, I'm not trying to shirk responsibility for, you know, my, you know, sort of personal role in it, so to speak. And really, the only way I can answer that question is to say that it's just, um, I feel tremendous gratitude and uh, and, uh, and and privilege, and to some degree also a responsibility. I mean, to keep trying to emphasize what mindfulness is and what mindfulness isn't so that it doesn't get so dumbed down or turned into a concept so that people then think, oh, okay, everybody's into mindfulness. Now I have to be into mindfulness. It just means, you know, being more in the present moment and a little bit judge less judgmental. Well, that's a nice thing to say, and it's not untrue, but it's only the hardest thing in the world to be a little bit more in the present moment and a little bit less judgmental. And so actually it requires this kind of commitment to uh, the love affair, so to speak, over an extended period of time, because otherwise it's just conceptualizing a new wonderful thing that you have to get a hold of and that you're missing and that when you get it, you'll be a better person. And, and that is so much antithetical to what uh, mindfulness is really about, that that kind of thinking, if it becomes very prevalent, because mindfulness gets more and more popular, could actually you know, eviscerate it and take the heart and what I call the Dharma heart out of out of this uh, uh, precious uh, 
energy in the world that we really, to come back to what I said in the first sentence, basically are starving for. John, thank you so much. Thank you so much for such an honest and helpful conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I can't have this conversation without the, without your heart and your mind and the, the sort of care and attention that you've given to the questions and helping me want to respond to them in the ways that I have. I've been speaking with John Kabat-Zinn. He's the author of a new book with an accompanying CD of guided practices called Mindfulness for Beginners. Mindfulness for Beginners is also available as a two-CD instructional audio. Through Sounds True, John Kabat-Zinn has also created a program, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief, specifically guided practices for people working with chronic pain. Sounds True also distributes a four-CD guided mindfulness meditation practice program, as well as a program featuring John Kabat-Zinn along with three other authors, Mark Williams, John Teasdale, and Zindel Segal, The Mindful Way Through Depression. Again, John, thank you for being with us. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.